Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Leg Upward Inclusion Spotlight, Making the Invisible Visible with me, Dr. Aparajita Jidigunta. Our guest today is Kristen Moore. Kristen Moore is a certified widow coach and founder of Joy Scavenger, a growing movement toward healing and finding light in the darkness of grief. She has decided to create a life around reminding people that there is joy to be found after surviving tragedy. In November of 2017, Kristen's world was shaken up when she suddenly lost her husband of 11 years. This is what prompted her to begin her own healing and her inner work by reaching out to others walking similar paths. Now, Kristen maintains a blog and offers her coaching services to people who want to do the work to find their own joy after loss. On a personal note, Kristen is actually a high school friend of mine. We went to the same high school together, and we were neighbors in Southern California, even though we did not realize it for the longest time until right before I relocated out of there. Kristen has two beautiful boys with her late husband, and that's where we're going to start the show. But first, I want to welcome Kristen because it is my absolute pleasure to have this conversation with one of the sweetest people I've known from high school. So, hi, Kristen. Oh, hi. It's an honor to be here, doctor. Oh, thank you. I I mean, I've known you for 23 years at this point. Mm -hmm. And anytime I think of your story and your journey in life, the one word that comes to my mind is is joy and resilience because you meet life with such grace and a smile on your face no matter what it's thrown at you in the entire time I've known you. Oh, my goodness. Thank you, Raji. Uh, um, That makes me feel really good to hear that, you know, especially given the fact that some days it's hard to get up in the morning. So, you know, all you can do is just take it one day at a time, put your best foot forward. So thank you for that. Oh, you're so welcome. And I'm sure, you know, those two beautiful little boys also help a little bit. Although I'm I'm also sure that you do need a break from them sometimes. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yes to both of those points. So, um, you know, having my boys, that has been the biggest blessing because they've helped me laugh on days when I don't think anything is funny. And just on, you know, a basic, you know, functioning level, I have to get up to make sure they're okay because I have to, you know, get my oldest off to school you know, my youngest was a preemie, so he came with a lot of accoutrement when we brought him home. So there was really no option for me to, like, just hide under the covers like I wanted to. So, you know, they, they keep me on my feet in lots of ways. I'm sure. And, you know, just seeing and, you know, for our listeners who don't know this, who obviously can't know this um, because they don't see our interactions on social media, your little one is just the most adorable. Adorable bundle of joy, like, oh my goodness. <laughs> He's a trip. He's a trip. They they both are uh really cool kids, amazing kids, and um the littlest one I always say he's an old man in a baby's body because he just has a certain gait in his walk and you would think he pays the bills. And he's just been, and that's another thing. The fact I mentioned that he was a preemie, his resilience, you know, seeing how he came into the world and literally fought for his life 
that spoke to me. So it's like, if he can do this, of course I can. Wow. That's, that's a really powerful lesson. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's to me, it's really incredible because I've known you in so many roles over the years as, of course, as a high school friend, but also after that, like, you know, when we were on and off, you know, in, in contact with each other, I know you did your MBA. I know you were working and then I found out it was in a Fortune 100 company. I know you had a blog and you were creating, uh, you know, you were actually the first person that I know that I know who had a podcast or, or you know, these video series and just all sorts of beautifully creative stuff. So tell me about like your trajectory of how all of that happened. Oh my goodness. So I think, you know, it's sort of a, I'm still on this continuous journey to, to find out what I should be doing next. And I always joke because I, I feel like I sort of went through a quarter life crisis career wise, because I feel like I found out everything that I don't want to do on this path to learning what it is I'm truly called to do. So yeah, I guess I'll start, you know, with college. Um, I was a marketing major in undergrad. I went to a small liberal arts college in Michigan called Siena Heights University. And I think looking back, I've always been, um, you know, inclined to do more creative things. But of course, I, I grew up in sort of a blue collar household where, you know, you sort of you know, you pick what you're going to make a living at, like in a way that makes sense and is going to make you the most money. So um, I I would say I didn't come from the household where you could tell your parents that you're going to take a gap year or you're going to study children's lit and and minor in dance. Like (laughs) we we just didn't come from that world. And my mom, you know, not to discredit her at all because she just wanted me to be able to live my best life. But she was, you know, more inclined toward me picking something that was a marketable skill that I could get, you know, a job and do all those fun things, even be able to afford to do them. So what I did was I picked business as a major, but in my mind, I picked the most fun and colorful of the business functions. I was not going to be an economics major or accounting or finance or any of that. I picked marketing. Um, I did marketing because I've always been fascinated with the psychology behind the purchasing process and how do you get people engaged. I've always loved advertisements and commercials, so I figured if I majored in marketing, I could take that path. Um, And then fast forward, um, I received my MBA but not before trying once and failing and then doing it again. So at one point I was actually a business school dropout because I earned a fellowship to Eastern Michigan University. And um, um, I got the chance to go to business school right out of undergrad, but it turned out it just wasn't the place for me. I felt like Doogie Hauser, like, you know, this little kid among all these people that have been in business for years and been in corporate America and came back to continue their education. So I really didn't feel like I had anything that um, that I could lend to the conversation. So I I made the decision that I would go out into the world and work before I went back to try and pursue the MBA again. And I think that was a good decision. 
Um, and along the way, as far as me like doing these podcasts and other endeavors that I've had outside of work, um, I spent 10 years at said Fortune 100 company that you mentioned. And then prior to that, I held a few other you know jobs at other co- companies. And it just brought me to this realization that um, corporate America is sort of a box that um, I've always had trouble fitting into. So outside of work, I've always sort of um, had these creative inclinations and um, just tried to put out content. And at one point I did have, um, I guess you could sort of call it a podcast, but I, I'll, for um, naming conventions, I guess I'll just call it a recording. But I did have this um, series of shorts that I put out called Inspiration. So M for more. I think I could have picked a better name, <laughs> but um, they were just little shorts about like, you know, uh, positivity and different topics that I thought people would like to, you know, discuss about self-esteem. So that is how that came about. Thank you for bringing up the name. That's what it was. Cause I was trying to be like, I used to listen to it. I should know the name. Uh, and, and, and Hey, for what it's worth, I thought the name was brilliant. And I know every single person that heard your for naming conventions recordings. I know they also thought so because you had a, actually had a pretty decent following, didn't you? You know what? I guess you could say I did. And, um, you know, the, it was really cool to find that like one time I actually, cause I used to post on SoundCloud and they had um, a feature where you could go in and look at the metrics. And when I saw how many unique visits I got, you know, people don't always comment. That's the thing. Like anytime you support a, a content creator and they say like, and comment, please do it. Cause that gives you the energy to keep going. But I had quite a few people that turned out to be listening when I thought maybe one or two people were. And incidentally, I've had a lot of people that have asked when I will start recording again. So that feels good. You know, this I think this was back when metrics as we know it were also just sort of in their infancy and everything because I had no idea back then that these likes and comments and all of these things mattered to, you know, on the other side. So I'll admit now publicly, I was one of those people that was listening and never commented because I didn't know. <laughs> so we have to take a short break, but when we come mm-hmm. back, I want to talk about how you've had such an interesting, unique, and very nuanced journey, both in terms of the joy that you've sought for and found or, you know, sought and found, but also the struggles that you've gone through. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in learning about your perspectives on diversity and inclusion. So we'll be right back after this short Mm -hmm. break to talk about diversity and inclusion. And we're back on Leg Upward Inclusion Spotlight, Making the Invisible Visible with me, Dr. Aparajita Jirigunta. And our guest speaker today is Kristen Moore, who is a widow coach and the founder of Joy Scavenger. So Kristen, you know, I feel like you've, you've lived, like, so you've lived in the Midwest, you've lived on the West Coast, like up in the Northwest and also in California. Where else have you lived? You know what? That that's the extent of it. I've um, okay. Yeah, the, the Midwest is where I was born and raised, and mm-hmm. in the last decade or so, I've been up and down the coast. So 
Seattle and Los Angeles, Orange County. All right, so let's start off there. Given the lovely old Midwest that we've grown up in, Mm -hmm. and given the completely different pace of the West Coast, Mm -hmm. what stands out to you in terms of like the diversity and inclusion aspect, the differences in the diversity and inclusion in these two spaces? Well, um, definitely, when I say I come from Michigan, in some people's minds, that might um, render different thoughts. Some people might think Michigan is, you know, um, industrial. You know, they might think it, it's mostly white people. But I come, I was born and raised in Detroit. So if you were to look at a demographic map of Detroit, you might see mostly people of Caucasian descent. And then you see these little spots where peppered in there are these clusters and populations. So at the time um, that I moved away from Detroit in 2006, if I'm not mistaken, Detroit was probably about 90% African American. Mm -hmm. That was a little bit of culture shock when I moved from Detroit to Seattle, which um, has significantly fewer black people than I remember being around. Mm. Um, so it, it, it was a, a, a culture shock in, in many ways. Um, and then as far as diversity, sometimes I've been to places where people think they are diverse and they think they are progressive, but they really aren't. And that's another thing. And then I notice how people, the conversations that form around diversity and inclusion, some people automatically default to race. When um, the company that I worked for, they used to have this excellent graphic that was called the Diversity Blueprint. And it showed the, the you know, what diversity actually meant. I mean, there's diversity of thought. There's diversity of, you know, between how people were raised and what their social norms were. And race is just but one bullet point. So um, they, I've just seen those types of, of differences between the places that I've lived. Yeah, my experience was similar in that I think in terms of like diversity and actual inclusion, I'd say Michigan is the most inclusive place I've lived in Mm -hmm. with its diversity, you know, because I went from Michigan, you know, for me, I came from Mm -hmm. India where I wasn't even a minority Mm -hmm. to Detroit, you know, to Michigan, not even Detroit, to Michigan, where I was like, what, one of three people in our class who were, you know, Indian Mm -hmm. descent. So I'm like, what, what am I doing here? Mm -hmm. Um, And then from there, I went to Hawaii, which is, you know, so diverse, but also like, you know, it's an Asian melting pot. And then from there, I came to Southern California, where I expected it to be this sort of like beacon Mm -hmm. of progressivism and liberalism and diversity and inclusion. And then I ended up in Orange County. And I'm like, um, where am I? (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Old money, and a lot of times old values and you know what I found is that you know it's that I mean you could you could uh, scale in as close as like just LA and OC and you see some of that progressiveness up north in LA, but per and this is only my you know personal observation, not to make like any blanket statements, but what I found in Orange County is sometimes you come across a lot of the people that are you know against 
in this progressive wave, you know, the, of California being sort of purple in that way. Like you still got a little red in there and you still have a few old timey values and people who don't want to like conform to this new wave of like melting pottiness. <laughs> if that's, a, <laughs> that's a, a word made up on the spot, technical terms, but you know, you Right. You see people, though, that here that are a little bit resistant to that. Yeah. And especially like where we lived, you know, it was like smack dab in the middle of the, that that old money, mm-hmm. you know. So it was it was just such an interesting experience for me that in, in so many ways, we didn't want to leave California. However, we came back to Michigan and it was almost like this sigh of relief mm-hmm. because we we felt at least I did overall as a family. Family, like it was like wow there there is so much more of a community here is that because this is where our roots mm-hmm. are or is that because this is how Michigan is that's an interesting question and it's really hard to tell and the reason I bring that up is you know with your permission I'd like to just read what you wrote for like the gaps and mismatches because everything that I've said about like my experience mm-hmm. it's it really relates to where you see the gaps and mismatches in our efforts towards inclusion right now would it be okay if I read that sure all right so this is Kristen's response to where do you see the gaps and mismatches in our collective efforts toward inclusion right now. Kristen said, I see people living, breathing, working, existing in spaces not originally created for them to thrive. I see disparities and prejudices woven so deeply into the fabric of the culture that sometimes it's hard to distinguish harmful inequities. It just becomes normal. I see people who reside outside of those inequities because they reside outside of those inequities become complacent about it and thus complicit in the continuity of those inequities and injustices. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a profound statement to make. Yeah, it's just so... And it feels sort of defeating when you remember that sometimes because, you know, if you if you start a conversation, you know, and in the past this has happened to me, you start a conversation with people who just can't like see the forest for the trees or they figure, you know, wake up. We live in America. Stop being a victim. You can do anything, but they're not coming from a place where they've had to deal with the same hardships and the same roadblocks and and they haven't started in the same place and they're not playing by the same rule book. One good example is the fact that I hear so many people, they try to sound like progressive and evolved by saying, you know, I don't even see color. I don't see race, you know, making those statements like that. And I see what they're getting at and what they're trying to convey but at the same time it almost makes me want to ask well what if you did see color because to me you saying that you don't see color it implies that if you did it would be bad (laughs) like I don't even realize that you're black like (laughs) like it it makes me want to dig deeper and say you know if you did realize that I was would would you conduct yourself differently or how would that go and it and and that to me is indicative of the fact that people don't even realize how deeply woven the inequities are. It's so funny you brought up that colorblindness because um, somebody actually told me that they don't see color. And I 
my literal response. And I wasn't even intending for this to come out of my mouth. But uh, I think you've known me long enough to know that I don't have complete control over that. (laughs) And I literally blurted out, that's a medical condition. You should really go to a doctor. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And this was in Orange County. Mm -hmm. Everything that you said in that response about the mismatches that was my experience in California. Like, you know, I tried so hard to be happy in California because it's California. People were telling me, oh, it's just, you know, you're in California, like just live it up. And it's like, okay. Like go to the beach and cry about it. (laughs) That's what I was left with. And it's like, but you're, you're, you're not even able to understand where I'm coming from. Like, why are we even having a conversation anymore? Mm -hmm. Given your experience in like these two different, completely different geographical areas and your life experiences and everything, how can we do better with intentional inclusion, with making the invisible visible and with actually practicing inclusion and not just doing lip service? You know what? I think, and it's interesting that you use the term lip service too, Because I was going to say the first thing we could do is even be open and willing to have the conversation. You see so many people that seem even like, you know, it just seems they seem really hesitant to even like face these sort of conversations or you immediately, um, you know, invalidate what someone is saying for them, this might be an outcry like, Oh, you know, I'm not being treated equally dot, dot, dot. And you have people that'll look at them and say, Oh, poo, poo race card. Here we go again. Relax. That's not our experience. If you don't like it here, go somewhere else type of thing. And I think a good place to start would be to just be open to the conversation. That doesn't even mean that you have to, uh, you know, adopt that person's thought. It doesn't mean that you're being indoctrinated and someone is trying to dismantle whatever, you know, whatever you've built over here, but just be open to talking about it and be aware that people's experience is different than yours. People are seeing a different lens you know, then you're seeing through. And I think another important thing is for people to really take the time to acknowledge their position, meaning, yes, everyone has hardship. A lot of people have, you know, the, the, the term privilege has become really problematic to a lot of people. And in a way, understandably so, because I see, you know, one person saying, what, you know, I'm not privileged. This, this and that happened to me and they'll give you the rundown to why they're struggling too. But you have to acknowledge the fact that there are people that have problems based solely on the color of their skin. You know, there are places that won't hire you because you're a female and that's more potential for you to have to take days off in their mind and, you know, whatever other stuff that they have. So just acknowledging that and not poo-pooing it and just totally invalidating what people say when they're really trying to express the importance of hardships that they go to maybe compared to you. You know, you actually brought up a point. I wonder what would happen to this perspective of colorblindness or not not being able to acknowledge the lack of privilege if these disparities were framed as 
trauma, you know, like instead of saying, here's how things were inequitable, if it's framed as here is the trauma I endured, you know, because I feel like people are a little bit more empathetic towards trauma and they don't realize that inequities and disparities are trauma Mm -hmm. right if we just took those words out and we just started calling them traumas traumas caused by systemic issues yeah and i mean that that would have you know there there would need to be like empathy on one side and acknowledgement on the other you know empathy from you know the people that don't experience these traumas And then on the side of the people who do experience it, like, have you ever heard of being like so uncomfortable that it becomes normal for you? (laughs) So you can, you can have inflammation in your body. And at a certain point, you don't even know you're inflamed because it's just the way you are. So you would need to, for those people to acknowledge, Hey, this is wrong. This is dysfunctional. Cause I can tell you, you know, being, you know, from predominantly African-American communities, a lot of these things that people are bringing up now and admitting that it's wrong is just day to day for a lot of people. You grow up feeling like, okay, this is what's going to happen. Let me just be ready for it. Like I come from a place where, you know, we moved to a really nice neighborhood, you know, here in Southern California. And I was just walking the grounds of our new rental and someone came out and they didn't say, hey, are you new here? Or are you my neighbor? The first thing they said to me was, can I help you? Like I wasn't supposed to be there. And that's awful. But to me, it was almost like I was prepared for that. Like I'm always ready for someone to be watching me while I shop. And I hate when my phone rings and it's not in my pocket, but in my purse. Because I don't even want anybody to think that I'm like sticking my hand in my purse, stealing things. But it just becomes normal. So, uh, yeah, Raji. (laughs) I'm so glad we're having this conversation. And I'm so glad my listeners are going to be hearing every word of it and the energy behind it. You know, I almost don't want to do this, but we have to take a break. Because you and I are going to continue this conversation off, Mm -hmm. you know, off the record. But we have to move on to the next segment. And so we're going to take a short break. And when we come back... I want to, you know, like what I want to really drill into is how all of these lessons that you've learned and how, how all of these life perspectives have influenced Joy Scavenger and everything else you're doing now. So we'll be right back after this break. And we're back on Leg Upward Inclusion Spotlight, Making the Invisible Visible with me, Dr. Aparajita Jirigunta. And our guest speaker today is Kristen Moore, who has blown the lid uh, off and blown the door wide open on so many of these invisible aspects of inequities and disparities that are so persistent that they have become normal for some people and other people can't even acknowledge them, which Kristen, that's such a brilliant segment. Thank you for that. Oh, no problem. Thank you for saying it was brilliant. (laughs) I feel like, you know, because we're being recorded, some people just kind of hold a little bit back, but that's also why I like specific 
pestered you to do this with me because I knew that given our relationship, I could, you know, I could rely on you to just be completely candid. Mm -hmm. What I really want to talk about now is the future, the present and the future. So you have Joy Scavenger. Mm -hmm. How has your experience with diversity and inclusion, in addition to your other, you know, really unique experiences with tragedy and loss, how has all of that sort of influenced Joy Scavenger? Well, you know what? Um, That question comes at such a good time because yesterday we just, um, you know, we had September 11th and everyone remembering the tragedies of um, 9-11-2001. And one thing, one sentiment that I saw expressed a few times is, you know, we would we would go a long way toward uniting the world if everyone could remember the way the world was the day after September 11th. Um, meaning that there was, at least in my mind, you know, there was this sense of unity and togetherness that sort of that superseded all of the things that make us different. Mm. No matter what your creed, your background, your race, your financial status, your education, we all were attacked that day, right? And so um, I think about that with regard to Joy Scavenger in this movement that I want to start because tragedy, um, as awful as it is, and loss and mortality, those are the great equalizers. You know, there there are a few that I can count, you know, on one hand. I know there's more than that. But in my mind, music and like emotions, happiness, sadness, tragedy, grief. So that is the one thing that um, one big overarching superlative in my life is I want people to realize that we're more alike than we are different. And I love to see people from you know, different backgrounds just come together, you know, under that same umbrella and just acknowledge and revel in the things that make us the same and bring us together. And I think Joy Scavenger sort of does that because when grief and tragedy and stuff, you know, when these things arrive at your doorstep, you know, it, the Grim Reaper does not say, oh, you're rich. I'll let you live a little bit longer. You know, or on in in my case with my late husband, oh, you're this world class aerospace engineer. You know, you have kids. You have a special needs preemie that you just bought home weeks ago. You have a wife living out here in California, and if you were to die, she would be all by herself with these little boys. So I'm a, I'm gonna let you have a few more years. It, he it doesn't do that. You know, when it's our time, it's our time. So, you know, there goes diversity. And that way we're all the same. <laughs> and that is one thing we're all included in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, you want to talk about inclusivity? There you go. There's something mm-hmm. so, so powerful to be said about the inclusivity of grief, just like you just said. It, it, it doesn't, mm-hmm. no, nobody can escape it. Mm-hmm. So you are now a certified coach, a certified widow coach, right? Mm-hmm. What tips can you give our listeners yeah. who might be going through similar or any sort of tragedy where they have to reclaim their life and find themselves in their joy again? What tips can you 
give them? I would say number one, be open to help. Um, because when you have something like that happens to you, you lose your other half, or in some cases, it may be someone who lost a parent. In my case, in the past, it's been, you know, losing my middle child. You have this urge to just like cut off from the world and hide in your grief. And it's fine to do that on days when you need to, but sometimes you really have to open up. Um, in my case, with regard to getting my widow coach certification, I literally felt like somebody had put a blindfold on me and I just, all I could do was reach out with my hand and use all of my other senses, you know, other than sight. I had to use my sense of smell, my sense of taste, my sense of touch and my hearing to find, you know, wave my flag and find people walking a similar path. So in that, I just started looking for podcasts. Hmm. Is there a podcast that, that, um, you know, is just for widows. And that is actually how I found the coach that granted me my certification after doing, uh, her 12 week course. But my biggest advice for people would be number one, accept help. One good example is that even in that darkest time after losing my husband, I saw the greatest show of kindness <laughs> that I have ever seen. I saw all my high school friends and all my elementary school friends uh, linked together. Apparently, there was a hashtag on social media with my name. I forget what it was. The Kristen's Village or something like that. Kristen's Tribe. Kristen's Tribe. I mean, for like quirky, awkward girl like me to know that like this was going around, you know, and and, and that people were rallying around to help me. And then when I read my husband's um, obituary page, you know, of course, there were all the wonderful things that people said about him that just moved me to the core. But there were also peppered in there things about me. <laughs> and I had people say things like, Kristen doesn't know me, but I remember back in first grade. Da, 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 da. And what that and what that showed me is like, if you plant those seeds of kindness, sometimes they come back when you least expect it or when you need it the most. And what I just spoke about, you know, I love seeing people from different backgrounds come together. I was able to witness my college friends, you know, and my high school friends become, create friendships behind what happened to me with people that I worked with at my current job at the time. And it was just really neat to see. So, man, I, I'm almost forgetting your original question, Raji, but <laughs> it brings all, back all the positive emotion, believe it or not, yeah. that came that time. This, and I feel like this is also the moment where I should like disclose to my listeners. Kristen Moore is the single person on this planet who got me started on the coaching journey. Oh my goodness. Because remember, it was after I, I you know, I talked to you. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, hey, is this something I could do? Yeah. And um, yeah, so I am now a certified coach. <laughs> the reason I say all of that is in the process of you scavenging for your joy and helping other people mm -hmm. scavenge for theirs, you've actually mm -hmm. profoundly changed lives. Wow. Wow. 
<laughs> that just hit me like a truck. Wow. And I mean, you know, that that when I named Joy Scavenger, because all of that came together relatively um relatively quickly looking back because uh, I lost my husband on November 24th and I think I created Joy Scavenger maybe you know a couple couple days later that December and to some people scavenger may you know elicit thoughts of you know oh why would you want to scavenge for joy it sounds like a place of lack and whatever but that's really not, you know, where I was coming from. It's like when these things happen to you, it's like you're really in a rubble pile and you're just trying to savage or, or scavenge for whatever is left and salvage all these A-G-E words. But <laughs> you're trying to salvage what's left of it. So joy scavenger to me means no matter what has happened to you, no matter how badly your world has been shattered and turned upside down, there's still these little points of light and these beacons that can be sought after. And you were saying what my advice would be to somebody trying to find joy after grief. Sometimes you really do have to look for it. Sometimes you have to, you know, laugh when you don't want to laugh. Sometimes if someone invites you out, you know, you might, you might not want to go, but Maybe just take a chance one day and go, and it might be the best decision you ever made. Like, really try to scavenge, and before you look up, you know, you're joy abundant again. It can happen. I feel like, you know, after my TBI, if I'd ever sought out a coach, you would be the exact type of coach I would have sought out. Wow. Thank you, Raji. Because uh, everything you've said in terms of the scavenging aspect of the joy, I don't think, like, I know it would ring true to every trauma survivor, every person with an invisible disability who is literally trying to find that singular moment in their day that they can hold on to. Mm-hmm. And we don't see it as scavenging at all. It's mm-hmm. it's our moment of, it's, it's almost a moment of glory. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we're nearing the end of our time and I just have one last question for you. Let's just hypothetically and totally falsely assume that this is like a last conversation. What would be your Mm -hmm. takeaway message for our listeners? Takeaway message for your listeners. Um, As far as diversity and inclusion, I would just um, repeat my urge for, um, for everyone to just be open to everyone's experience. And that is from both sides. You may think you're the most progressive and you're already open to something, but you may be closed to the opinion of the xenophobic person over there. My advice would just be to try to see where they're coming from. Don't try to change them because that would be, you know, a an effort that might, you know, you might be disappointed. You can't change people. You can only control what you do. But I need it. I would just implore everyone to just be open to everyone's perspective. And therein is where you find, um, you know, where inclusion can be nurtured, you know, because when you humanize someone else's experience and really take the time to see the path they've gone and what they've been through and what caused them to have the views that they have now, you sort of become a little bit more empathetic. So that that would be my biggest takeaway. 
And then with regard to finding joy after grief, just, you know, make, take the first literal step. Just go out and try to find it, whatever you can do. Do what makes you feel good. If that means a solo lunch or going to a movie by yourself or going to the toy store and buying a toy. I love the toy store. You know, going back to childhood, whatever helps you feel good after grief, Start slowly but surely doing that, and that kind of builds those joy-building blocks again, and you discover a new normal that makes it easier to proceed. Wow, that was awesome. I like that, the build joy-building blocks. That's my takeaway from this conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kristen. This was uh, such an enlightening conversation. And like I said, we're going to talk offline about future conversations. And to all my listeners, thank you so much for tuning into this amazingly powerful episode with the founder of Joy Scavenger, Kristen Moore herself. And I will be putting all of her social media information, website information, and probably even a few episodes of her, you know, like links to a few episodes of her. <clears throat> inspiration if I can find them they're still on show notes so please be sure to check them out and um, now that we know about metrics please be sure to like and comment as well (laughs) (laughs) and I will be back with another episode but for now I do want to say Kristen Moore thank you so much for helping me make the invisible visible in terms of diversity and inclusion but also in terms of recovering from trauma and tragedy so thank you so much for that Thank you, Raji. Thank you. For all my listeners, I hope you have a wonderful night and wonderful time. Bye.